Hey everyone, and welcome to Sincerely Luddy. I'm your host, Luddy Shoemate, here to bring you truth and knowledge about history, social issues, life, and more to help you connect the dots and see the bigger picture that is so necessary in our society today. This week's episode in the Jim Crow series is about racial terror, violence, and lynching in America. It's actually part one of two. So the episode I'm doing in two weeks is going to be part two to this because I had to split it up. There was no way I could talk about it all in one episode. Um, I mean, I could have an episode that have to be like three hours long. <laughs> so uh, I had to split it up. And the reason why I split it up is because, yes, the Jim Crow era began whenever the Reconstruction era ended, which was 1877. But racial terror, violence, and lynchings were happening prior to um, 1877, especially the racial terror part. So, and I'll get into more of that. Um, but it's important to set the scene and for you to understand the political and social atmosphere after the Civil War. So that's doing history justice. I mean, whenever you, I mean, y'all know I've talked about this a lot. Whenever you are understanding or attempting to understand and learn about events in history, you have to go back and see how you got to that point. I'm also going to admit something else to you all. I read a lot of history and I extensively research a lot of hard history. History that's tough to read. Um, history that some people would just put down because it's just too much. But I, I'm really glad that God has given me the strength and the ability to continue on and not stop because I just refuse to not tell people um, about this horrific history of our country. And a lot of people just want to say, oh, but we've progressed. Oh, but that's not happening anymore. But actually it is because uh, lynching has just evolved into mass incarceration and um, the death penalty and so many more things in this country, which I'll also get into get into with this episode and then part two to this episode. Because y'all, this stuff wasn't a long time ago, okay? I'm, I mean, the Jim Crow era was uh, 1877 um, until around like 1960 and uh, really 1965. And that's not a long time ago. So anyway, I said all that to say that this history stuff, um, the way that I'm going to do these two episodes is this episode is going to be about like what led up to the Jim Crow era and the political and social atmosphere, like I previously said, and things like that, that are necessary for you to see just how deliberate and just how evil and just purposeful all of this was to just reign terror on black people in this country simply because of racism and simply because of white supremacy. That's it. There's nothing else. There's no other justification for it except those two things. And white supremacy is, that in itself encompasses a multitude of things. So anyway, I know I usually do a like, recent history or current event um, 
kind of segment in my episodes, but I'm just going to jump right in today because I have to cover quite a bit of information. So I'm going to start by saying that if you have not looked at the Equal Justice Initiatives website, or if you don't follow them on Instagram, or you don't follow them on Twitter, or what have you, I highly recommend that you do that. So if you're not familiar with the Equal Justice Initiative, it was um, started by Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy. If you don't know what Just Mercy is, it is a phenomenal book. I mean, one of the best books I've read. Um, I mean, I read it a couple years ago, but it was one of the best books I've read in the last I'd have to say five or six years. And um, there's also the Legacy Museum in Alabama. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. It has like the pillars and it. Um, yeah, so I'm going to put a link in my uh, show notes for you to click on, for you to go to their website and just explore. And they also have a very wonderful like report about lynching in America that traces everything and I highly advise you to read that as well because even though I'd love to say every little thing about lynching in America and just there's no way I mean I could do a whole series about this an entire series um, just about lynching in America because there's so many things that go into it to start I'm going to read part of the Equal Justice Initiative's report on lynching in America. So during the period between the Civil War and World War II, thousands of black Americans were lynched in the United States. Lynchings are defined as um, violent and public acts of torture that traumatized black people throughout the country and were largely tolerated by state and federal officials. These lynchings were terrorism, yes, these lynchings were terrorism. Terror lynchings peaked between 1880 and 1940 and claimed the lives of black American men, women, and children who were forced to endure the fear, humiliation, and barbarity of this widespread phenomenon unaided. Lynching profoundly impacted race relations in this country and shaped the geographic, political, social, and economic conditions of black Americans in ways that are still evident today Terror lynchings fueled the mass migration of millions of black people from the South into urban ghettos in the North and West throughout the first half of the 20th century. Lynching created a fearful environment where racial subordination and segregation was maintained with limited resistance for decades. Most critically, lynching reinforced a legacy of racial inequality that has never been adequately addressed in America. The administration of criminal justice in particular is tangled with the history of lynching in profound and important ways that continue to contaminate the integrity and fairness of the justice system. The history of terror lynching complicates contemporary issues of race, punishment, crime, and justice. Mass incarceration, excessive penal punishment, disproportionate sentencing of racial minorities, and police abuse of people of color reveal problems in American society that were framed in the terror era. The narrative of racial difference that lynching dramatized continues to haunt us. So EJI goes on and they actually distinguish racial terror lynchings from 
hangings and mob violence that followed some criminal trial um, process or that were like committed against uh, people who were not minorities without the threat of terror. Those lynchings were a crude form of punishment that did not have the features of terror lynchings directed at racial minorities who were being threatened and menaced in multiple ways. And also in their report, they distinguished terror lynchings from racial violence and hate crimes that were prosecuted as criminal acts. So why were lynchings considered acts of terrorism? Well, because they were murders that were carried out with impunity, sometimes in broad daylight, often on the courthouse lawn, even on church property. And when I say church property, no, I don't mean a church like own some land down the road from the home, from where the church actually stood. No, I mean in front of the church itself after Sunday service, lynchings were held. And terror lynchings were these horrific acts of violence and the perpetrators were never held accountable. And I mean, there were some spectacle lynchings, like public lynchings where people would go and like by the thousands, men, women, children, and they would watch someone get tortured for hours and the body burned, the body mutilated, the person, I mean, yeah, I mean, these were all attended by the white community and they were these celebratory acts of racial control and domination. The Equal Justice Initiative has documented 4,084 racial terror lynchings in 12 Southern states between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and 1950, which this is at least 800 more lynchings in these states than EJI had previously reported. And then there were also more than 300 racial terror lynchings in other states during this same period. So yeah, important to also understand and know is it wasn't just the South. So get this image of oh, it was only the South and only the Southern states who did these horrible things to people. No, it was also the North. Jim Crow, um, the like, Jim Crow era was not just like subjugated to like the South. So no, and then prior to the Jim Crow era, it wasn't just the Southern states who were, um, who were figuring out how to continue for black people to just be inferior to white people. I'm, I mean, that's a simple way to put it. It was the entire country that was working against black people. Okay, so I'm gonna try to break this down for y'all to understand it. Um, Mississippi, Florida, Arkansas, Georgia, and Louisiana had the highest statewide rates of lynching in the United States. But um, and, and again, EJI's site goes into this a lot more because it's extremely detailed and w a wonderful source. But the largest number of lynchings were found in Jefferson County, Alabama, Orange, Columbia, and Polk Counties in Florida, Fulton, Early, and Brooks Counties in Georgia, um, counties in Louisiana, at least six of them, um, three counties in Tennessee, Anderson County in Texas, and that's just the largest number of lynchings that were found in, I mean, as far as the states go. But do know that 
um, something else that happened were mass killings of black people, which are considered racial terror and violence as well. So um, whenever I say mass killings, what I mean are like race massacres, which you've probably heard about. Um, one which happened in New Hanover County, which is in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where I practically live. Um, there were race massacres in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There were race massacres in, um, and mass killing of, of black people in Florida, in Arkansas, I mean, in Mississippi. Uh, the numbers are there. The facts are there. So there's that information. And also know that racial terror lynching was a tool used to um, enforce Jim Crow laws and also racial segregation. Um, this was a tactic, basically, for maintaining racial control by victimizing the entire black community. Black Americans were lynched without being accused of any crime. They were killed for minor social transgressions or basically for demanding basic rights and fair treatment. So in summation, black Americans were um, victims of racial terror, violence, and lynching because they were black people in America trying to live. Sounds kind of familiar to today, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Which is also why whenever we think of lynching, it is so important to not just think of a body hanging from a pole or a body hanging from a tree. Yes, it is that also lynchings are necessary to be seen through the lens of racial terror. So, an example, Emmett Till. You would... I mean, you know the story of Emmett Till, 14-year-old boy, um, beaten to death, tortured, murdered, lynched. And no, his body was not hung, but what happened to him was a racial terror lynching. Another thing I forgot to mention about the states where lynchings occurred, um, Oklahoma, Missouri, Illinois and West Virginia were other regions with the highest numbers. So again, this doesn't mean that there were not other states outside of the South that did not lynch people, but these um, four states had the highest numbers. Like I said in the beginning, you have to set the scene and have historical context leading up to understanding this stuff. So let's go back to why the Civil War started. So. 11 southern states seceded from the Union, and they conformed the Confederate States of America. And this is why the Civil War happened in 1861. Um, they didn't hide their ultimate aim, which was to preserve the institution of slavery. People want to argue that that's not why it happened, but it absolutely is. So Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens said that the ideological cornerstone of the new nation they sought to form was that the Negro is not equal to the white man, and slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and moral condition. So there you have it, all right? Slavery is why the Civil War happened. The end, period, moving on. So January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which I know that you know about, and it declared enslaved people um, that lived in the Confederate States to be then, thenceforward, and forever free. 
But very important to note is that the proclamation did not apply to the, I don't know, 426,000 um, around that number enslaved people who were living in Tennessee, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland, states that had not seceded or were occupied by Union forces. Okay. So in most Confederate states where the proclamation did apply, there was resistance to emancipation and there was no federal effort to enforce um, freedom that was granted to um, enslaved people. So what did Southern people do? Like these farmers, they just did not tell people, okay, about the um, Emancipation Proclamation. And so people just remained um, slaves for a couple more years. How did this end? Well, um, in December 1865, um, the 13th Amendment was ratified, which prohibited slavery throughout the United States, except as punishment for crime. Several states continued to resist into the 20th century. Okay, um, Delaware didn't even ratify the 13th Amendment until 1901. Kentucky ratified it in 1976, and Mississippi ratified it in 1995. In 1995, I was seven years old. That's a problem. It's a serious problem. All of this is necessary because it shows that white Southern identity was rooted in the belief that white people were um, superior to black Americans. So after the Civil War was over, white people got violent. They were not happy because they um, would now have to treat the people who they used to own as equal people and pay them for their labor, which was not at all what they wanted to do. So um, plantation owners attacked black people simply for claiming their freedom. Okay, so this is where we see the beginnings of racial terror and violence, all right? This is between, I mean, this is before 1868. So between 1865 and 1868. Let me also interject here and say something I should have said at the beginning of this episode. Since there is so much history that can be covered in like a whole series, I'm going to be summarizing the best way I can and the best way that I've done for this episode. So I won't be able to say every little thing, but I am going to say the major um, components and factors in the political and social atmosphere of America. Okay. All right. So moving on. Reconstruction. This happened after the Civil War ended. Congress established the Freedmen's Bureau in March 1865, and this basically was established to provide formerly enslaved people with basic necessities and um, to help oversee their humane treatment in the former Confederate states. But the issue with this was there was no budget that was given to the Bureau, and this left it to be funded and controlled by President Andrew Johnson's War Department. Well, what was the issue with this? Okay, President Johnson was a Unionist former slaveholder from Tennessee. He served as Vice President during the Civil War, and he also assumed the presidency after Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865. He initially, so Andrew Johnson basically initially promised to punish the um, Southern traitors, aka those who seceded from the Union, 
and in um 1866, he issued all these pardons, though, like 7,000 pardons. So he didn't go through with what he said he was going to do. This is important to recognize because people often separate Union soldiers from racism and from white supremacy and from these ridiculous, manipulative political acts. But look at what he just did. I mean, just because they weren't Confederate soldiers didn't mean that they weren't racist, and that didn't mean they cared about the well-being of free black people. So please always remember that. He also um, took back orders that granted uh, black farmers land that was taken um, from Confederates. So just a lot of messiness with um, the former president, Andrew Johnson, which is also one where people say, our forefathers and our former presidents were wonderful. Actually, actually, they weren't, so there's that. Instead of facilitating black land ownership, uh, President Johnson advocated a new practice that replaced, that replaced slavery, which was sharecropping. And if you don't know, this is whenever black laborers worked um, for uh, white people that own land in exchange for part of the crop at harvest time minus the costs for food and lodging where was this food and lodging and yeah um, often in the former slave quarters okay where they had previously lived so let's just think about that for a second you're a free person a free black american and now though what's happened is you're working for the same person who enslaved you and tortured you and beat you and God knows what else and so now you're working for them and sure people be like oh yeah but they were sharecroppers first of all that is not at all anything to be happy about okay because sharecropping was not equal and sharecropping was not fair at all sharecroppers black sharecroppers um, didn't even receive pay usually for what they did because they had to um, via President Johnson's administration and their rules, these uh, black these black Americans had to pay off debts to the bank first. So they didn't have any money. They never had any money left over. And so, what else was problematic about President Andrew Johnson? Oh, I'll be happy to tell you. He opposed black voting rights. Yep, he sure did. Um, in his 1867 annual message to Congress, President Johnson declared that black Americans had less capacity for government than any other race of people, that they would relapse into barbarism if left to their own devices, and that giving them the vote would result in a tyranny such as this continent has never yet witnessed. Oh, okay, so you're just going to backtrack on all that you said you're going to do for America, basically. So do y'all see where the politics are coming in? Do you see how history books just left this information out, just conveniently left it out? What else happened under President Johnson's administration? Um, well, federal reconstruction efforts to support and enforce the, citizen, the citizenship rights and equality of black Americans and their social and economic freedom went largely like unsupported and unrealized. So meanwhile, the Johnson administration is letting white people in the South 
reestablish white supremacy and dominate black people without the white people being punished. So this is where we also see the federal government not doing a damn thing about inequality and about the racial terror and violence that was enacted towards black people. Black codes were put in place, which were laws that restricted the freedom of black Americans. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed, which declared black Americans full citizens entitled to equal civil rights. So you're thinking, oh, that's a positive right. Mm, yeah, well, you know, President Johnson vetoed that bill. And then decades after that, we still see that the Civil Rights Act that mattered the most, acts that mattered the most, were the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965. This is a hundred, let's see, a hundred years after the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So that shows you that that didn't even do anything. That 1866 Civil Rights Act was not, I mean, it was for show. So in the midst of all of this growing instability, what we see is this struggle for the government to control violent and lawless um, groups of white supremacists in states, not just the southern states, in some um, western states and northern states, just America in general, just, yeah. So beginning as these social clubs, um, uh, former Confederate soldiers, we see groups like the KKK emerge and other vigilante groups. The KKK was founded in 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee by six Confederate veterans, okay, who wanted to um, take a stance towards reestablishing white supremacy. Let me also make a note here that these were Confederate veterans. And so whenever I see things on social media where people say, um, all veterans in the history of this country need to be respected. Actually, no, because these Confederate veterans, um, first of all, they're veterans of like states that committed treason against the country, but all right. Um, but aside from that, you know, that big part, aside from that, they're also um, men who chose to enact violence and reign terror on and kill and murder and torture and, mutil and mutilate black people. So no, whenever you say things like that, they're problematic. So I think more people need to work on how they choose to generalize history. All right. I had to put that comment in there. I just couldn't continue on with this episode without saying that. But anyway, so the KKK spread really, really quickly. And then we see um, before the 1868 election, Republicans, who would be identified mostly as today's Democrats, um, they wanted to remove President Andrew Johnson. And they did have him removed um, via impeachment by the House of Representatives. But they failed to secure his conviction in the Senate. So as a result of this, Johnson remained in office and the Republican Party ended up suffering politically. As a result of that, former Union um, soldier Ulysses S. Grant, sorry, let me repeat that, Union General, 
that's what he really was. Ulysses S. Grant um, won the Republican presidential nomination. And so then we see in the general election that Grant faced off with the former New York governor, um, Horatio Seymour, who campaigned as the white man's candidate. And so in a March 11th, 1868 speech to the New York State Democratic Convention, Seymour said that black people are in form, color, and character, unlike the whites, and are in their present condition an ignorant and degraded race. So basically, Seymour was anti-black people, anti-anything to do with granting black people their rights and equality and humane treatment in America. And so what did this do? Oh, well, it made white people happy. So as white terror groups wanted to suppress the black vote and give the South to Seymour, there were violent attacks in Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia that resulted in hundreds of deaths. And this also successfully prevented black people from casting any votes. Okay, so we, we're already seeing this as early as 1868. Racial violence and terror. But Seymour did not win. As we know in history, Grant won the seat. He became the president. And the Klan initially, initially, wow, initially, um, the Klan initially dissolved. Okay, so they were like, okay, well, we didn't get what we wanted, and Seymour is not the president, so no, this does not mean they just disappeared from the entire landscape of America. Nope, not what happened. So what we see happening is the Klan partially disbanded, but there were also other like white groups that took up the cause of restoring discipline in the absence of slavery. So just because the Klan disappeared for a minute, just for a minute, okay, because they came back, they reinstated themselves um, a little bit down the road, which I'll talk about later. But what we see is now this these white vigilante groups coming up and vigilantes whipped and lynched black freedmen who argued with employers. They lynched and whipped and tortured and beat black people who um, left plantations where they were supposed to be working. And whenever I say plantations where they're supposed to be working, that sounds like slavery, doesn't it? Yeah, no. What I'm talking about are the black sharecroppers. And something else these white terror groups focused on was like giving their own vision of a righteous society, which usually meant just targeting black men for perceived sexual transgressions against white women that they did not commit. So what were these perceived sexual transgressions? Well, they were usually charges of rape, um, which were fabricated very, very often. Um, and they were also, I mean, they like went along with the black codes and the fact that black men should have governed themselves a certain way, which goes back to the fact that the black codes restricted the freedom of black people being able to live and breathe as they choose to in society. So um, white mobs regularly attacked black men accused of sexual crimes. And I mean, 
according to the EJI, a pro, like around 400, at least 400, black Americans were lynched between 1868 and 1871 just for being accused, falsely accused, of committing a sexual crime. Yeah, it's a large number. That's a very large number. So white people also sought retribution for these alleged rapes. And what they did is then they went and they targeted the entire black community. And they targeted the entire black community with violent public and sexualized attacks, including forcing, um, and this is, this may be really sensitive for some people to hear, but, um, it was whenever like they would force, um, black Americans to strip and they would put them in compromising positions and they would uh, whip them to a horrible extent. Um, And then there was a widespread rape of black women and black women um, were raped in front of their families sometimes, raped just out in public, um, raped by multiple men at one time, um, sodomized and there was also genital mutilation and castration. Yes, I know that's very hard to hear, and you may be right now envisioning something in your head, but and it makes you uncomfortable. I'm not going to apologize for it, because you need to hear it, and you need to picture it, because it's terrible. I mean, it's horrifying even for me to think about. So through these acts of violence, uh, these white vigilantes use terror to and I quote, revive the privileges of white masculinity over the bodies of their former slaves, it was said by a historian. So what else was happening politically? Well, the Supreme Court changed something, well, found a loophole in the 14th Amendment. So just to remind you, the 14th Amendment um, granted citizenship and civil and legal rights to um, black Americans. But in 1872, the Supreme Court basically held that the 14th Amendment protected solely the privileges and immunities conferred by national citizenship. I quote that from EJI. So then I looked up some more things about this privileges and immunities clause. And basically this clause in the 14th Amendment ensures that every citizen is treated the same in another state as citizens of those states. So with that being said, what does it mean whenever the Supreme Court found this loophole to um, basically say that this was only, that this clause is what needed to be upheld? Well, it was mostly irrelevant to struggles that black people faced in the South. So the court reasoned that Rights that were derived from a person's state citizenship were enforceable only in state court, okay? And why is this an issue? Whenever you're saying, oh, yeah, so you are entitled to that, but actually it only matters if you're being tried in a state court. Well, because the state court was ruled by white people and white people were automatically hostile and did not care about any claims that black people made in the South. So this right here shows us where, even though 
you have these amendments and the federal government like put these in place it didn't matter it didn't matter whenever you could still find the loophole and you could still give the um like say okay well, we're just going to turn around and just let the state courts do what they want to do that's a problem and it's what happened in america like not just in the south then the 14th amendment was tested a second time whenever um, this happened in louisiana a united states attorney um, brought federal criminal charges against white perpetrators of the colfax massacre and just some quick background about the colfax massacre it happened in louisiana on easter sunday in 1873 it was a of course it was a political um it was a political response and white people were mad and so like 300 white people attacked the courthouse because the party they wanted in was not the one that won and at least 150 black people were killed so going back to what I was saying about the attorney in Louisiana, so he brought the federal criminal charges against the white people in um, Colfax, Louisiana, who were responsible for killing these black people and conspiring, um, so anyone who helped and thought about what to do. But um, charges were brought under the Enforcement Act. So what was the Enforcement Act? It was basically this act that made it a federal crime, okay, federal crime to conspire to deprive a citizen of his constitutional rights and allowed the federal government to prosecute any crime committed as part of such a conspiracy. So also what it did is it um, provided that the underlying crime could be punished with the same penalty prescribed by state law. And so um, anyone who fell under this and committed a crime that they were brought under this enforcement act um, they were subject to the death penalty for and so these white people who murdered these black people in Colfax Louisiana um, would receive the death penalty but what happened oh well with overwhelming evidence okay of what they did only one person was um, I mean one person was acquitted and then um, the white jury could not seem to reach a verdict against any of the other people. They just couldn't seem to realize what they did. So what happened? No one was prosecuted, like no one went to jail for that. No one um, received the death penalty for murdering black people. So once again, we see the federal government saying, oh, well we tried, we have this act put in place, but actually, yeah, it's the jury that decided. The, the jury is the one that's, that couldn't reach a verdict. That is not okay. And so we continue to see this throughout history. And like we even see this in our society today. So in another case, um, United States versus Crookshank. I'm probably saying that wrong. I've seen it so many times doing history research, y'all. But it's spelled C-R-U-I-K-S-H-A-N-K. All right. Anyway, this case was decided March 27th, 1876. The court held that the 14th Amendment prohibits a state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Okay, that's what the 14th Amendment said. But then what this court case added was, but this adds nothing to the rights of one citizen against 
as against another. So, in other words, the Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment provided protection only against actions of the state, not against individual violence, and the power of the federal government was limited to the enforcement of this guarantee. Yes, let me repeat that. In other words, you have this 14th Amendment that says, like, you can't deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. But then they went and said, but actually, this, um, I mean, this is only against actions of the state. So we can't do anything about what someone does to another person. And as a result, the Enforcement Act was completely dead. And black Americans in the South were now left at the mercy of white terrorists so long as the terrorists were private actors. And to break that down a little bit more, um, private actors would have been considered private citizens, okay? And private citizens are defined as people who do not hold any official or public position. A private citizen is also then, to break that down even more, um, a person who resides in the country. And so, um, like right now, today, I'd be considered a private citizen. Um, so, because I'm, I'm a person who lives here. But this goes to show you that um, their whole, like, oh, well, we can't do anything about it if they're private actors. Okay, well, that just means you aren't going to do anything about it, period, because they always were. They were always people. They were always just people who did it. Because um, whenever you look at um, lynchings and look at racial terror and racial violence that was carried out, the state, okay, the state may not have, like, co-signed it formally, but they were always involved. This is where we see the power, and this is where we see um, white supremacy being upheld and um, this reign of terror and racial violence being perpetrated from the highest um, offices. So in 1872, Congress gave full civil rights to Confederate leaders. Whenever a few years before, they said they weren't going to do that. Okay, but now they're doing it. And they also restored their eligibility to hold public office. So what does this mean? This means that these Confederate leaders, okay, who who seceded because they wanted to keep slavery. And these same Confederate leaders who led white vigilante groups, okay, these same Confederate leaders who were white terrorists are now able to sit in state and federal government seats. That's a terrible idea. But this is also where we see when the federal government was complicit and was okay with the um, racial terror and violence that black people were already facing and were going to face even more. And so then we see, uh, I mean, right after 1872 and the five-year period, so 1872 to 1877, these last five years of the Reconstruction era, you also see these Confederate leaders, these Confederate soldiers, Confederate veterans, okay, um, reigning white supremacy or white supremacist rhetoric, rather, 
into society and starting all this violent intimidation to regain political control over these southern governments. And things were not much better outside the South because the Supreme Court continued to basically chip away at federal reconstruction laws. We see this in 1875, for example, whenever Congress passed Senator Charles Sumner Civil Rights Act. And this act mandated desegregation and imposed criminal penalties for racial, dis racial discrimination in jury selection. But actually, this didn't even have a leg to stand on. Why? Because the case I talked about a few minutes ago, um, the United States versus Cruikshank. Yeah, so that decision left little to no legal basis to enforce desegregation provisions. So then, in 1883, the Supreme Court declared the law unconstitutional. Then we see the next decade, Plessy v. Ferguson, the court upheld racial segregation as completely consistent with the 14th Amendment, and they created the doctrine of separate but equal. Yeah, history books didn't tell us all that. And whenever I, y'all, whenever I was studying this history years ago, you know, in graduate school, I was just so angry because I'm like, people don't even connect these dots. And so that's why I'm connecting them now for you. So you can see how it doesn't matter whenever people bring up the argument of, oh, but this amendment was passed. Oh, but we have this law. Oh, but this is okay. Not if there are loopholes and something prior to the amendment or the law being put in place now completely just doesn't give the one, the current one, any leg to stand on. And that's what we see, okay, with this 1875 Senator Charles Sumner Civil Rights Act. Sure, it sounds good, but then you had cases before that that left no room for justice, okay? None at all. Because without federal protection, Black people were targeted in brutal attacks, okay? And they were susceptible to horrible violence and racial terror, especially whenever we think about voting, okay? And black voters and what they had to deal with on election days because what we see is there's no federal protection anymore. So now the federal government's like, all right, look, those are your state elections. We have nothing to do with that. The state is allowed to do what they want to do to govern themselves through their election process and on their election day. So let's backtrack again. Whenever you say that, you have to remember that who's running the governments in these southern states are the previous Confederate leaders. Also, the same Confederate leaders who are, um, who are giving a voice and empowering other Confederate soldiers and white people in general to want to enact violence and murder kill and uphold uh, murder and kill murder and torture i'm sorry black people and uphold white supremacy because see the presence of federal troops in the south during the reconstruction era acted as sort of like a dam okay that was holding back some of the violence um some of the violence some of the political suppression and this racist rhetoric that was always said, okay, by those who wanted to restore white supremacist rule. 
So then you see their premature withdrawal unleashed this pent up wave of violence that easily topped the rest of these the rest of these protective structures. And then with that, black people were left in this inferior economic, social, and political position, which also allowed them to then be subjugated to and be victims of racial terror, violence, and lynching. So now that political power had been regained by white people in the South who wanted to uphold white supremacy by any means necessary. You see legalized racial subordination that could and would be restored. So from 1885 to 1908-1910, all 11 former Confederate states rewrote their constitutions to include provisions restricting voting rights with poll taxes, literacy tests, and felon disenfranchisement. And also many of these new constitutions included parts about segregation, like they were against interracial marriage, they were against integrated public education. Um, I mean, the list can go on. So then in the decades that followed, aided by convict leasing, Jim Crow laws, of course, um, and emboldened by the federal government's complete like disinterest in enforcing the racial equality guaranteed by the federal constitution. Okay, so let me repeat that. Even though the federal government needed to enforce racial equality guaranteed by the federal constitution, like there are these Southern legislators, these Southern governments that institutionalized the racial inequality that was all over and very evident in their state constitutions. And another note here is this is why today, whenever people want to make the argument of, well, our constitution is our document that we all need to abide by. Do you see how they use the constitution as a weapon though? Do you see like, a weapon against black people? Do you see how they took the constitution and the federal government, the federal government turned their back and they said, well, we don't have anything to do with what the states are doing to their people. No, we have nothing to do with that. So don't come at me with the constitution argument because that's a load of crap. And people wonder why today people in our society are, you know, black people are protesting and how whenever someone says like to me, for example, well, you need to respect the flag. You, you need to respect the constitution. When did the constitution respect me? When did it ever respect my ancestors? Because it didn't. It didn't, it didn't had, it wasn't even for black people. They made it seem like it was because sure, history books show us the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments were passed and Lincoln um, did his emancipation proclamation. Like, so it paints this picture of, oh, black people were okay. We were not okay. We were not okay. And in the 15, 20 years after the civil war ended, the federal government completely disowned us again again so no i'm going off on a rant right now y'all but it's because i get really frustrated when people come with the argument of the constitution has always been for us no nah, the constitution has always been for white people always has been it's always protected white people and what i'm telling you right now with this history that led up to jim crow before jim crow even started do you see how this country didn't give a damn about abiding by the constitution for us.
And I just mentioned comic leasing. If you don't know what comic leasing, the actual definition of it was the practice of selling the labor of state and local prisoners to private interests for state profit. In other words, it was the exploitation of black people. Okay, because black people were disempowered. Why? Because, it goes back to what I was saying about state legislators and how they passed these discriminatory criminal laws known as black codes, which created these new criminal offenses such as vagrancy and loitering. Like I said before, just being a black person. You could be arrested, you can be put in jail, and then whenever you were put in prison, and prisons then, I could do once again a whole podcast series just on that, um, then you were able to be leased, okay, to a white man, um, and you could go and work for him for free. And in that, okay, who's profiting from that? The prisons were, the like jails were. Well, the jails were, and also the white people who would lease you were. That is slavery, again. And how is this able to happen? Because the 13th Amendment, um, which says, okay, that it prohibits slavery in involuntary servitude. Yeah, it says that. But then right after that, it says, except as punishment for crime. So, lawmakers, okay, empowered white controlled governments to take black labor in private lease contracts or on state-owned farms, okay? Again, another display of this amendment, but there is a loophole. I don't know if I've said this on this podcast before, but if you have not seen the documentary 13th on Netflix, you need to watch it. So what does comic leasing show us? in addition to the fact that it was horrific and just, just no, okay? Um, it shows us that the solution, okay, to the free black population, okay, the solution to black people gaining power, the solution to um, black people living their lives was to um, criminalize them and How do we see that in our society today? Well, with mass incarceration, because the most common fate that black convicts faced during convict or whenever they were released was to be sold into forced labor for the profit of the state. So here's the state still profiting off of the black body, but they're saying, oh, but we don't have slavery anymore. No, that was slavery. And just FYI, the conditions of these um, prisoners, like these black people who were in prison for, I don't know, walking down the street, uh, were just just terrifying. So there was this 1887 report um, by the Hines County, Mississippi Grand Jury. And... Um, this report recorded that, this is just an example for you, okay, of the conditions of convict leasing, that six months after 204 convicts were leased to a man named McDonald, 20 were dead, 19 had escaped, and 23 had been returned to the penitentiary disabled, ill, and near death. Black people who were... Um, arrested and put in jail, their conditions were far worse than those of white 
prisoners. I mean, that should be a no-brainer because, yeah. I mean, why would they treat them okay in prison? They treat them like they're nothing out here in like society. How, how do you think they were treated in prison? And what we see here is convict leasing demonstrated the way in which the criminal justice system would become this central institution for sustaining racial domination and hierarchy in America. It basically just legitimized excessive punishment and abuse of black Americans, and it terrorized other people of color. And while convict leasing is happening and black codes are happening, and we see the federal government just turning their backs to protecting black people in America, the Jim Crow era is emerging. And under, you know, Jim Crow rule, there's all aspects of life were governed by this color line. From the most central and important, like public education, how that was segregated throughout the South, to like mundane and tedious. Like just tedious things. Like the fact that black people weren't allowed to look a white person in their eye. Couldn't call a white man by his first name. You had to just, yeah, y'all just couldn't even breathe and be black. Because here we are seeing that what black people had to learn was that their rights that they thought they were going to have were were basically just unenforceable in a white-controlled political system that was hostile to them even being there. And this message was communicated through this complex system of racial subordination built after the Civil War to maintain and reinforce white supremacy in a world without chattel slavery. And I mean, constructed by laws and customs, force and fear, disenfranchisement, convict leasing, segregation, the system was guarded. And this is why I tell people that there's a serious injustice in how history is taught in public schools. And I mean, especially for me, I just speak from my own experience, and I'm sure some of you can agree with this, that all of this was not explained. And this is why there, even today, there is a disconnect between Um, especially with this history surrounding the Civil War and Southern states and Southern heritage. There's such a disconnect and just a misinformed, like people are just so misinformed. And there's so much that our country has not dealt with. There's so much that people in this country refuse to acknowledge. There's so much, whenever it comes to the history of this country, that people just want to say, well, that was just of the time. No, it was wrong. It was wrong. And Whenever you think about lynchings and racial terror and violence, no, don't just picture the Klan. Don't just picture these white vigilante groups because you want to know something? No, I'm going to change that. Yes, picture these white groups. So when you picture them, include the fact that they were doctors and they were lawyers and they were bankers, okay? That they were the sheriffs, they were the governors, okay? They were the, they were the mayors, They were um, store owners. They were farmers. They were 
pastors. They were deacons. They were people who went to church every Sunday. They were men. They were women. They were children, okay, that were included in in these people who wanted black people to be murdered and killed and they wanted to uphold white supremacy. And I know I've had people tell me before, yeah, well, you actually just can't group all these people together. Actually, you can and you need to, because if you choose to isolate it and you choose to just say, well, they were just these white groups of people. Oh, well, they, they were just the bad people. No, Mm -mm. you have to call it for what it is. And the next episode, part two of this, I'm going to talk about, um, public lynchings and the spectacle of lynching and what that meant and what it represents. I'm going to talk about the black body as a souvenir. I'm going to talk about what happened at lynchings. I'm, 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 I'm going to talk about the aftermath. I'm going to talk about the postcards that were sent out. I'm going to talk about um, the fact that body parts of black people were put on public display in stores where people would go shop. I'm going to talk about the fact that black people were lynched because white people were upset. That's it. And this is, it's hard for people to listen to. And I know some of you listening, it may be hard for you to hear, but why, if we don't face the history and if we don't face our past and how in the world are we going to ever be able to have conversations about progression and reconciliation and how in the world are we going to even have conversations about institutionalized racism and systemic racism and mass incarceration and how in the world are we going to have conversations about the fact that there's someone in the white house right now that has emboldened people to have these same ideologies these same beliefs that we see in 1872 with the white terrorists who wanted to uphold white supremacy so much so that they sought to murder and torture and mutilate black people because this is real life right now, okay? And I just get tired of people wanting and not even, not even wanting. No, I'm gonna change that word. I'm gonna change the word. Choosing, okay? Choosing and wanting um, to see history how they just want to see it because that's wrong. <laughs> like I was saying before, there will be a part two to this episode in two weeks. And I'm very ready for you to hear that episode because it's going to be a lot heavier than this one. This one was just a lot of historical context for you. But the next episode, I'm going to tell you now, it may be really difficult for some of you to hear. I'm going to take time to read uh, actual um, lynching accounts and what happened to the bodies and what people said afterwards. Like I was reading yesterday about a woman who had her kids at this lynching spectacle, and I'll talk about this in two weeks, but, um, and she put her daughter on her shoulders so that she could get a better view of the burning black body and you want to know something else? I'm not, because I have to tell you all this right now. You want to know something else? Um, there were public lynchings, okay, 
that were um, held at like fairgrounds. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. Fairgrounds. Fairgrounds are a place where you go to have fun. But these people would use the same area to murder someone. And before they murder them, they'd mutilate and torture them. And people would come from all over to watch this. Like thousands of people to watch someone. And whenever you think about that, whenever you think about that, think about the conscious effort it took to say, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go watch someone die. Mm-hmm. Just about that for a second. And I know, <laughs> I'm sure that whenever I talk like this, some people may be like, oh, Letty, you always repeat the same things, but I'm going to keep repeating it because I want you to keep realizing that you need to imagine these things and you need to really um, revel with the fact that this kind of evil and this kind of hate just didn't just disappear, okay? It didn't just go away. It didn't just go away because we're now in 2019, almost 2020. It didn't just go away, all right? It just has evolved. It has evolved into systemic and institutionalized racism. And this is also why whenever people say, this is not my America. Whenever I see stuff today about things that are happening in our country, I'm like, oh, but it is your America. It has always been America. This is nothing new. So whenever people say stuff about like 45, okay, and people are feeding him and they're feeding his narcissism and they're giving him all the credit for emboldening these people and for, and for bringing racism back and for um, all of this crap, I'm like, y'all really are out here acting like he's the only one. He's terrible. He is terrible. Don't get me wrong with that. I can't stand him. I want him to go away. But you also have to stop looking at it just through that lens and thinking that because we have social media now and thinking that because it's talked about more now that it's just not started. I've been black my whole life. That's why some white people are just like, what are y'all, I mean, we've been told y'all this. And also why whenever we look at people who do sit in the White House, okay, like the current occupant, He's not the first occupant of the White House that has this mentality. He's not. I mean, in 1906, okay, you have President Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. He actually said the greatest existing cause of lynching is the perpetuation, sorry, the perpetration, especially by black men, of the hideous crime of rape. He said it in an editorial. Like someone quoted him. And like, so that's why whenever people glorify the past and people of the past, I'm always the one that's like, yeah, but they were so problematic. Yeah, but they weren't that good of a person. And I've had people get upset with me. And people are like, yeah, but you should see the good that people did. Well, that is such a privileged statement to be able to say you should only look at the good that someone did. Absolutely not. Like people glorify Teddy Roosevelt, glorify him. And I'm like, have you read progressive era history at, at all? Did you, do you know anything about him besides the whole um, carry a big stick stereotype and whatever he said? 
and how he showed manliness and power. Okay, but he also didn't care that black people were getting lynched by the thousands. He didn't care about the fact that black people um, were being subjugated to terror. He didn't care about the fact that we were not getting our rights. He didn't care. So what? So now you want me to look at him and say that he was a great person? How? That doesn't make any sense. Because if someone does something bad to you, like you listening right now, if someone does something terrible to you, okay, absolutely terrible, and another person says to you, oh, that person is such a good person, you're going to say, no, they're not. No, they're not. And so why is it hard for people to have this mindset, the same mindset whenever it comes to history? Because we haven't, and by we, what I mean is, I'm not even going to say we, America has not accepted the fact that America is not just for white people. That's it. And America also continues to run via white supremacy culture. And until we work on um, acknowledging the history and we actually uh, work towards dismantling racism and dismantling white supremacy and yeah then don't come at me with that stuff because I'm not going to receive it well from you and you're not going to you're probably going to feel or white people a lot of white people say oh well you're just attacking me no I'm not attacking you you're just uncomfortable and you don't like the fact that right now I'm telling you about yourself and your own people because your ancestors did a lot of messed up shit. So, anyway, <laughs> I'm going on a rant right now because obviously I needed to get all of this out. And I just, y'all, look, the reason why I talk about this stuff is so, number one, because it needs to be talked about, but also because I want you to hear the dots being connected. I want you to hear the true history. And again, none of what I say on my podcast is just my opinion. It's fact. And um, something I've come across recently with people is people want to um, say, oh, well, I know about history. And I'm like, that's not the same as being a historian. Because what I do, I put a lot of time, I put a lot of, I put so many hours into doing this stuff so that I can present it in a way that it impacts you, that it, that it impacts people that I talk to, that impacts you all who are listening. Because somewhere, there's someone who doesn't know any of this. And there's some, and this same person who doesn't know any of this could possibly go out there and read something that doesn't connect any of these dots. So then we would have another person in the world, in the country, wherever, with the wrong information. And though it's uncomfortable, it's necessary. You've got to be, you've got to be okay with being uncomfortable. And um, that's why I encourage you all to look at EJI's website. I encourage you all to, I mean, they have so many sources. They even y'all have this database that track that has tracked every lynching. Okay, state, county, um, down to who, down to uh, area. I'm, like all areas, it's fascinating. And um, yeah, and two, don't just look at this stuff like it's just history. No, this is, this is America. This is our America today. And 
I want what I say on my podcast to resonate with you all so that you can go out and you can also have the courage to correct someone. And you also can have the courage to say, okay, well, this might cost me this person or this might cost me, um, I don't know, feel uncomfortable in this space, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because that is where I see people actually working towards um, understanding what it means to be anti-racist and also what it means to put yourself aside. Because unless you're willing to sacrifice something and unless you're willing to, um, to say that basically no, like you're going to, yeah, like sacrifice something, then, then what are you really doing? And so it's not enough to share on social media and it's not enough to like something like you got to say something. And whenever you say something, you have to follow it up with some sort of like you, you, there just has to be action, period. That's basically like what I'm trying to say. There has to be action. And in this episode of the Jim Crow series, talking about racial terror, violence, and lynching, um, I hope that you've seen just how evil and manipulative um, people were and that this system has just transformed, I mean, has just become what we are in in our society today. Whether people want to accept that or not, it's a fact. So anyway, um, I meant for this episode to be an hour and here I am at an hour and 13 minutes. But uh, yeah, so please do tune in to part two of this episode which will be available in two weeks and get ready because that one's going to be full of some serious stuff and um i hope that you all do share my podcast i'm asking that you do that especially this jim crow series because this history is so it's just conveniently just looked over yeah like people go from civil war to civil rights and i'm like y'all are missing a whole hundred year span like a whole 80, 90 year span or 80 to 100 year span. So, um, yeah, please share, please tag me, please tag me because it definitely helps on Instagram. Remember you tag me in post and please, if you're not following me on Instagram, um, follow me at sincerely.letty and please review my podcast, especially, um, in iTunes when on Apple podcasts, because it helps with my visibility and it helps people to find me and to learn more history. And once again, y'all, this is not for my own gain. This is because I want people, I'm so passionate that I want people to just learn this history and to um, take it and do something with it. So with that being said, until next time.